Did you ever feel survivor's guilt? Absolutely. I do remember talking, this was at Dartmouth, talking with, I think it was the hospital chaplain. And I remember asking if uh, Fred's family was mad at me. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. James Osborne was cold. So cold that his core body temperature dropped to 76 degrees. One of the coldest people suffering from dryland hypothermia to ever be revived here in the U.S. James and his friend had been hiking in the White Mountains of New Hampshire when a fierce winter storm bore down on them. James' friend would not survive. His name was Lawrence Fredrickson. Fred. This episode is dedicated to Fred's memory. I want to thank the search and rescue teams on the ground and in the air who put themselves in harm's way. And the medical teams. To care for another person is life's highest calling. I hiked the Franconia Ridge Loop Trail this past summer with my dog and my teenage daughter. And I know you know that part of that loop tracks the Appalachian Trail. It's a nine-mile hike over four mountain peaks, and you see waterfalls along the way. And when you're hiking along the ridgeline, you can see far and wide across the White Mountains. For me, it was one of the most challenging, beautiful, and rewarding hikes of my life. And I've hiked in several other countries, so I think that's saying a lot. I did make some mistakes that day. They were fairly minor, So I'm well aware that hiking comes with an inherent set of dangers that you can't always entirely manage. For you, though, that hike turned into one of the worst experiences of your life, if not the worst experience. How familiar were you with Franconia Ridge before you and Fred, your co-worker, went out that February morning in 2008? I feel like I had hiked it twice. There was a group of of four men that we all worked for Concord Coach, and we all hiked in one group or another. My main hiking partner is generally a man named Steve, and he wasn't on that, you know, the hike with Fred. Uh, but so Steve and I had definitely done Falling Waters, um, and I feel like I had done it one other time. But those were also summer hikes, so for sure not a winter hike. New Hampshire author Ty Gagne has written a couple of books that are quite popular with people who hike the White Mountains. The Last Traverse is his book about the rescue and recovery of you and Fred from Little Haystack Mountain. After reading that book, it is still hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that you're even alive. Your friend Fred died on that mountain. You and he were bus drivers, like you said, and he left behind two sons. What kind of guy was Fred, and how do you hope he's remembered? I know I knew Fred as, as probably one of the, the friendliest people that I had ever met. The first time I ever met him, I, I had a bus that was broken down in Boston and potentially was going to sit there for four or five hours until a tow truck came to tow this bus back to the garage. Instead of taking his break, Fred got on his bus and he drove to where I was specifically to pick me up so that I wasn't sitting there for four or five hours. He had a great sense of humor. He just he just was kind of a cool guy to hang out with. What had you and Fred done to prepare for that hike 
in terms of fitness, equipment, and just general planning? On the fitness side, I'm, I don't know that we did anything specific. I was certainly guilty of being completely reliant, and maybe even completely, but being reliant on other people for, you know, well, what time are we going to leave? How long is it going to take? What do I need to bring? So equipment-wise, as this was my first official winter hike, I went out and purchased crampons. I had intended to buy snowshoes, and it was late enough in the season that EMS was out of snowshoes. And then I, th- I think the other thing I bought was like some winter hiking pants. And it's funny, like as I'm sitting here, I'm going, oh my goodness. I mean, this sounds like such a bad idea from the start because, (laughs) you know, using crampons and a new pair of snowshoes, going out the very first day to go on this, you know, this long hike is not the time to like, oh, let's let's see how these things work. So, you know, as, as Ty says, you know, there's this, this little mistake or this, you know, this little decision has a great impact later on. And then in, in terms of the planning, we certainly did talk about the weather. What did you know? I think we knew that there was a storm coming in. I did not look at the higher summits forecast. I don't think Fred looked at the higher summits forecast. I think we probably relied on, you know, like like network um, Local TV weather, maybe. Yeah, yeah, TV weather or, you know, a weather channel kind of thing. I think we knew that a storm was coming. I'm a much slower hiker than Fred was, was a much slower. I'm, I'm still the slowest hiker in the group. And there, there may have been an element where Fred's planning may not have been wrong for him. Okay. But as soon as I became part of the equation... And being a much slower hiker, you know, maybe that maybe that had an impact. Uh, you know, that's a hard question to answer right now. So take me along on your hike. You start out in the morning. You're hiking the trail, what, counterclockwise like I did, where you go to Falling Waters Trail? Yeah, so our plan was to hike up Falling Waters Trail and traverse um, along the ridge and come down the bridle path. Um, and I think we expected that to take, you know, seven or eight hours, I'm guessing. Sounds about right. So you and Fred are hiking. When do you know something's wrong? So there are two signs that I do come back to. Uh, and actually, there's three that I come back to that I've thought about a lot over the years. The first was as we were just hiking up the trail. Um, so going back to not having proper equipment, I didn't have snowshoes. And there were a couple times that I kind of post hold all the way up to my hip. Explain that to people. Not everyone knows what that is. So that's where you put your foot um, on a trail or, or you're walking on snow and um, the snow is not firm enough to support your body weight. So your, your foot will sink. Um, you know, maybe sometimes it only goes to your ankle or your knee. But in the case of this particular hike, there was enough snow that it went all the way up to my hip. And then a snowshoe will help prevent that because the snowshoe will spread the weight of your body out over a greater area. So that happened several times on the way up that that um, it wasn't concerning, but it was just frustrating. And, and yeah, it's hard to hike. Yeah, it's going it's to be a long day if this keeps happening. You know, it was that kind of thought. The second thing I look back on is, so we had eaten lunch at, um, oh, forgive me, is that called Shimmering Rock? 
Oh, I forget. Shining... Shining Rock. That sounds right. So uh, we were sitting there eating lunch, um, and this is... The time frame is, I'm guessing, 11.30 to 12, something like that. That's that little outcropping before you get to Little Haystack Mountain. That's where Shining Rock is, I believe. Correct. There's a little bit of a trail junction there where you can go out toward the Shining Rock ledge and you can see out into the wilderness or you can hike up continue on up to the summit. So we had sat there and ate lunch. And in a span of 10 minutes, I mean, it it felt like the temperature dropped 20 degrees. And I've always, I'm no meteorological expert, but I've always assumed that was kind of when the front sort of blew through. The third event that I always kind of think about is as we were, of course, you were just there, but as you come up the trail, you kind of go through a little bit of an alpine garden. And then you're sort of relying on rock carns for the trail because the trail, you know, is less apparent because you don't have all the the flora around you. You're like above you, the tree line. Yeah, exactly. And I remember, and it was it was foggy enough, um, and there was enough weather that I remember looking over my shoulder and you couldn't see where the trail went back down. And I said something to Fred. I said, Fred, I, I, it's kind of hard to see the trail. I said, How are we going to know? you know, when we get over to the bridal path. And, and he said something, uh, something along the lines of, you know, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. As we were starting to ascend Mount Lincoln, and we were not very far up Mount Lincoln, uh, less than a fourth of the way, a fifth of the way, just, you know, hey, we had just started the ascent. That's when the, the storm really, like, blew in with, um, you know, the full force of, of what what you know is a pretty what what turns out was a pretty severe winter storm. I can remember it being like this really lonely moment, and it was like I had I did have this sense that uh, oh my gosh, this is going to end well. Did you say something to Fred then? So we we convened. Um, as I recall, he was hiking slightly ahead of me, and we talked about what to do. And he wanted to hike back, and I think I initially agreed with that. He, back to the trailhead. Yeah, to just turn, do a full 180, hike back to Little Haystack, descend Falling Waters, get back to the car. You know, and He did head back. Yeah, You yeah. were heading back at that point. Yeah, he turned around and he headed back. Um, and I turn around and head it back with him. But as I said, he's he's much faster hiker, so he was a considerable ways ahead of me. He looked back, and you know, I, I waved at him, and and we reconvened again. And and I said, I really think Fred, we need to seek shelter. And I think we had talked about you know how narrow that that ridge line is there, and how exposed you are. Yeah, the possibility of it'd be fairly easy to walk off the edge. Can't see very well. Yeah, and and the, you know, Ty talks about full conditions, um, and this is the only time I've ever experienced that, and it, it is completely disorienting. Like a whiteout. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, even today, there's been a couple times that I've skied or even been out you know, doing daily life, and you're just out in those conditions. And there's been a couple times that's like, whoa, you know, and it gives me this little bit of a flashback. But a whiteout is one thing when you're in a car on a street that you know you're on. And it's an entirely different thing when you're on a mountain and the 
edge of the mountains, like right there, and you could fall off. Yeah, and, and it's also completely different on a ski slope. I've never had that same sense of danger when it comes to winter weather on a ski slope because you can always just ski down. Right. You know, and, and in a worst case scenario, you know, there is someone right there that can help you. This is not the case on, you know, those ridge lines. I think for me, I mean, there's an element of, you know, any other day, 999 days, I could have gone and done that hike and probably would have been okay. You know, there's an element that it just so happened that the day I went was this fierce storm that, you know, as Ty describes in the book, you know, this combination of these weather systems and, you know, it all comes crashing together right over the Franconi Ridge, right when we happened to be hiking. And you knew about the weather, but for the timing of the weather, that's what did you in. Absolutely. And I certainly didn't have the respect for the weather that I think you need um, to be hiking in the winter whites. It, it's, um, it is truly, you know, the worst weather in the world. You know, it can be. It's so deceiving because our mountains aren't as high as the Rockies, for example. For sure. And it, it, you know, we don't have, you know, the whites are not as remote as, you know, places out west where, you know, you're, you're 150 miles from the nearest town. I mean, I don't know that you're that far, but you're a ways from the nearest town versus, you know, when you're on the Franconia Ridge, you're, you know, once you hike down, you're 15 minutes from a hotel and a hot meal. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so <laughs> so I have had two brushes with death myself, and I don't remember any fear those times. I just remember peace and resignation. Both of those times I was in my 20s. One of the times I was hospitalized with pneumonia, and I was just so weak, and I was ready for death. And the other time I had a head-on car wreck on a rainy highway, and I just had a few seconds to process what was happening. It seems like you, though, had some time to think about what was happening on that mountain. And I know you thought you were going to die on Little Haystack. Could you read the passage from Ty's book where he writes about yours and Fred's struggle? I looked back and Fred was crawling, he recalls. Having veered off the trail, Fredrickson is having great difficulty making his way. I walked back toward him, Osborne says. By the time it got to him, he was on his right side in a fetal position with his back to the wind. Osborne can barely bend at the waist to get closer to his friend, who is still wearing his backpack. He screams over the wind. Fred, you have got to get up. Nothing. Fred, we have got to keep moving. We're almost a tree line. Still no response. We've got to keep moving, Fred. Fredrickson responds by rolling from his side onto his back. As Osborne watches, his friend's hands clench into tight fists. Oh my God, they're going to take my hands, Fred wails as he holds his hands out in front of him. In a moment of pure anguish and one that still deeply affects Osborne today, our hands make us human, and when Fred said that, it was as if his humanity was gone. Fred, you've got to get up. Osborne pleads. Fredrickson utters a moan and goes silent. Lying on his back, motionless, his head pointing in the direction of Cannon Mountain, he appears lifeless. 
The exposure and lack of movement will further thicken the blood slogging through his constricted veins, arteries, and vital organs. His ultra-lean body mass, which has allowed him to move fast on mountain trails, is now working against him. He has not been able to maintain a safe level of body heat and is now in critical condition. It is impossible to know exactly what time hypothermia will claim Fred Fredrickson, but death is not far away. As he looks down at his friend, Osborne feels desperation take hold. At that point, I felt there was no recovering from this, he says. It was the end and there was nothing else that could be done. I was sad about my friend. I was sad my life was ending, that this was how I was going to die. It was so clear to me. Osborne sobs as he ascends the slope. He's making no effort to link up with Falling Waters Trail, which is now painfully close, or to even seek shelter. It was a dead man's walk, he says. I said to myself that I've done the best that I could. Before continuing, Osborne turns and looks back at his friend for one final goodbye. He walks past the trail junction leading down to Falling Waters and past the summit of Little Haystack. Less than 24 hours ago, he and Fredrickson had stood there together, anticipating a long but exhilarating day hike. He walks aimlessly along the scrub line on the southeastern slope. I said my piece to the world. I apologized to my mother, saying, I'm sorry, Mom, that it happened this way. I went through a list of my regrets, one of which was never having raised a child. Osborne's next thought takes the form of a vision. I had this out-of-body experience where all of a sudden I was up and I could see Fred, he recalls. It was very clear to me. I was facing the Pemi wilderness and I could see Fred lying there. I could see my physical body walking off toward a little ledge and I knew that was it. He expresses surprise today that he didn't remember feeling fearful in the moment. It was peaceful. There was no pain, no worry, nothing, he says. I knew that was the end. I'm not a religious person, but I do know there's a greater spirituality. The vision is erased as Osborne drops into the snow and loses consciousness. Under tremendous duress, the cortex of his brain relinquishes responsibility for managing the situation. It hands control over to the primitive brain and switches off. As Osborne lies there alone on the mountain, it will be up to his primitive brain to keep him alive long enough for any hope of rescue. Do those thoughts still haunt you today? I think they probably haunted me for a long time. And when I say a long time, so, I mean, these events happened, you know, almost 14 years ago. I would say it, it took me four or five years to start to move beyond that moment. And what I've often told people, say in 2010, when I would meet someone, it would be like, hi, I'm James and I'm a leg amputee and and I lost my leg on a hike in the mountains in New Hampshire. Whether or not the person even wanted to know that, (laughs) whether or not it was even relevant to why I was meeting them. That's how you identified It totally was. And I do not identify that way now. If people ask me, I will tell them. And certainly people ask, um, you know, children ask and they want to know. I've got different, you know, responses based on, you know, do I feel like talking to this person? Is it relevant? So it will always be a sad thing to know that, you know, this, this was how Fred died. 
it will always be a sad thing for me to know that you know I was foolish enough to do these things that almost cost my life and and you know certainly has affected me in in terms of you know being an amputee and and that kind of thing so no I don't feel haunted by it anymore but it it is something that there's rarely a day goes by that I don't think about these things. Well, you're physically reminded each day when you look at your body. Yeah, but you know, even that, um, even that's less than what it was. I mean, I'm a pretty. Um, when it comes to being an amputee, I'm I'm pretty lucky, you know, in that I, you know, there's a couple sports that I participate in that I do at a pretty high level. But even the day to day functions of being an amputee, um, it's not a huge struggle for me. So I'm very lucky in those respects. At one point, you go unconscious on that mountain. Were you aware while you were still conscious that some of your cognitive abilities were failing you? No, absolutely not. You know, Ty was very enlightening to know, to, you know, talk with someone about hypothermia and I, at one point, um, when he was interviewing me for the book, we I there I like had this moment of clarity. I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, we had hypothermia on Sunday. You know, sometimes Sunday afternoon. You know, as you know, I mean, and if you've read the book, I, he does a great job of not really being judgmental about the decisions that we made, in the sense of right or wrong. But, you know, there's a couple times that I was like, hmm, okay, that doesn't sound like the smartest thing. But what I know now... But that's what your mind does to you. Yeah, but I think... And you don't even know it. Yes, and I think also what I know now is the the effects of hypothermia on your ability to think, you know, it it's pretty quick. By the time we got to Monday morning and we decided to walk back to the car, you know, and then we had the moment where... That was uh, 24 hours in then. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were surely in the full throes of it and had probably been that way for, out of the 24 hours, you know, maybe 18 hours of it. So Maybe 18 hours of the 24, you were degraded in your ability to think and process and do things? Yes. That's what you're saying? Yeah, that's... It's a long time. That is a long time. So a ground search and rescue effort gets underway on the trail, and eventually the New Hampshire Army National Guard search and rescue team sends a Black Hawk helicopter team. But no one really knew your plans when you were on that hike, so that slowed down the initial rescue effort. They had to abort their first attempt when the uh, chopper came to the mountain because the conditions were just so dangerous. They return a second time. You were unconscious by that time when you were found by them. Fred had already died. By that time, it's Monday evening, about 36 hours since you and Fred started your hike. The Black Hawk, before they're rescuing you, hovering over that mountain for about 12 minutes, which that team says is a virtual eternity. The pilots said that your rescue mission was harder than any military mission that he had completed prior to your rescue. 
The weather was absolutely life-threatening, and there were no official weather observations from Little Haystack, but at nearby Mount Washington, which is a higher elevation, there are official weather observations coming out of that site. And around the time of your rescue, they reported temperature, minus 11 Fahrenheit, wind chill, minus 52, 75-mile-an-hour winds with a peak gust of 92 miles an hour. Visibility no better than one-sixteenth of a mile with fog and blowing snow. And the helicopter blades were icing over, too, you know, weighing down the chopper, making things even more dangerous. They eventually get you off that mountain and evacuate you to the hospital. And then they come back for Fred. What's your next memory when you're there at the hospital in Littleton, New Hampshire? So I have no memory of the hospital in Littleton. As we previously talked, I went, you know, Fred had this incident where he was laying on his side, and then I walked off and made my peace with the world. And my next memory was sometime Wednesday morning, the incident with Fred, um, and I've always assumed that was probably when Fred died shortly thereafter. I, I'm That's Monday morning. 9.30, I don't know, something like that. And then all day long on the mountain, rescued Monday evening. And then I was at Littleton Hospital from Monday evening until about, I think, about midnight, 1 a.m. on Tuesday morning. Um, and then I was flown to Dartmouth Hospital. Jumped forward a full 24 hours. I think Wednesday morning was when I woke up. So here I was intubated. The nurse said something to the effect of, you know, oh my gosh, Mr. Osborne, you know, nice to see you awake. And of course, I couldn't talk because I had this tube and she was able to ask me a series of yes, no questions. She said, you're at Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. You were involved in a hiking accident. And somehow she knew I asked about Fred and she said, oh, is that your hiking partner? And I was able to nod yes. And she said, I'm so sorry to tell you that he passed away. He did not survive. And then I went back to being unconscious. I've never heard of a guy who survived by a margin as thin. Your core body temperature got down to 76 degrees. And Ty told me you were one of the coldest people suffering from dry land hypothermia ever to be revived here in the U.S. It seemed like the medical approach was not to be too overly aggressive, to let your body gradually warm itself back up. It seemed like your own body was the key to your recovery. Is that what they were doing initially, waiting and seeing? Yeah, I, I mean, that's my understanding of, of the treatments that that happened. Um, and what you're talking about was the treatments at Littleton Hospital. As far as I know, that's the case. I mean, I've had more than one doctor that has had said, you know, something along the lines of, you know, you've got an incredibly strong heart or or something like that. And, and you know, it, it's a hard thing to explain. And when you asked earlier about what haunts you, you know this this is kind of this is kind of the other side of that is you know well why did you survive why was i still alive enough 
for those men to find me and be able to care for me long enough and 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 the helicopter could you know evacuate me to the hospital there's just there's so many pieces that fell into the play into place it's just remarkable to me to you know know that you know so many people and these are volu- you know primarily volunteers that just drop everything and we're going to go rescue some guy yeah and we don't even know any details, as you noted earlier. You know, when they're setting off looking for us, or when the helicopter's looking for us, they don't know details. They don't know what they're looking for. They just know they're looking for something. You know, it's it's mind blowing to think that you know here I am all these years later, and I've got a pretty good life. And you know, there's these sports that I do, and and there's this life that I lead that. Um, you know, in a lot of respects, I think it's better than the life that I led before. I'm incredibly grateful to be here, and I'm always thankful of, you know, the men and women that, you know, are behind the scenes on those rescues. What did you think when either you noticed or the doctors told you that they had to amputate your leg? I see one of your fingers is missing, and I know that at least several of your toes on your left foot were also amputated. So let's see. I ended up at Dartmouth Hospital on early Tuesday morning. And by Tuesday evening, my mother had arrived. She lives in North Carolina. She had arrived, you know, after, of course, hearing of this news. And she'd flown up here and and, and so forth. The next part of that is, uh, is, some, is like post-traumatic stress. And... When I look back on those times, I mean, that that certainly was something that was present, you know, in those days that I woke up from the hospital. And one of the things that was very apparent to me was a complete lack of understanding of what kind of condition my body was in and how serious the injuries were. And even, you know, maybe how serious um, or, you know, how close to death I was in all of that. Uh, the moment that 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 kind of set in was so here my mother has arrived and uh, she's a nurse and I think she could see all of those I think she could see that PTSD moment in me when I was in the hospital and so what she ended up doing was she brought a mirror in so here I was in the hospital I wasn't able to like I wasn't moving around enough that I could like or lift a leg and like look at the condition that my feet were in. And she brought in a mirror. Um, and here she's like at the end of the bed and she's angling this mirror so I can see these feet. And I remember crying over that and realizing, you know, this is like some bad shit or something <laughs> like that. I, you know, and um, not fully processing yeah. it quite yet. The timeline with those two things was. Uh, they amputated my leg. So interestingly enough, so within the amputee community, um, some amputees choose to celebrate their ampuversary because it's often, you know, a return to health for them or it's a return to life if they were involved in a tragic accident or something like that. And for years, I never knew what my ampuversary was. And then working with Ty on the book, I got a hold of all my medical records and Lo and behold, my ampuversary is February 29th. Oh, well, <laughs> it doesn't know, come around just no, every year. It, you know, it kind of makes it a special day. So that had been amputated um, 
February 29th, along with my pinky, both both were just so necrotic that they weren't going to survive. And uh, and then my foot was amputated much later. The toes on my left foot were amputated much later. You said on Twitter that the first night home with one leg was one of the loneliest moments of your life. What did you mean by that? I was released from the hospital. This was um, a Saturday in May, Saturday, May 3rd. And my friends, uh, two of which were of our hiking group, and and their wives and a couple other friends um, moved me into an apartment in, um, in Merrimack, New Hampshire. And someone made a pot of spaghetti and meatballs and packaged it up. So I had microwavable meals and, you know, someone went and got the bathroom set up and made the bed. And, you know, so I had this whole crew that basically did everything, you know, to kind of get me started in this new apartment. And then, and then everyone just left. And here I was all alone and, it, you know, it was this, it was this brand new apartment that I didn't really want to live in because it's not my apartment, you know, and, and it was a first floor apartment out of necessity because I needed the access. You know, when you're in the hospital, you have, you know, there's always someone around, you know, nurses are such good people that all the time that I was in the hospital, if, you know, I ever needed to talk about something or felt bad about, you know, what had happened or, you know, those depressive thoughts come, you know, the nurse comes in and, you know, nurses are really good at what's wrong. They and, can pick up on uh, that. Yeah, and, and but so, you were living alone in a new place. Yeah. And, th- and, those, and your life had totally been disrupted. And that support structure was no longer there. What does it feel like to have a part of your body get so cold that you get frostbite? I would say it it's not nearly as painful as it sounds. The part that the part that I think of that hurts is like, you know, when you get inside and you warm up, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, a warming up maybe too fast. Yeah, something that like pins that. and needles feeling that we've all felt maybe. Yeah, because um, that's a little painful when I'm outside oh, in the cold. Oh, for sure. And so I know that. What I'm saying is, I don't think I ever felt that, but then. You know, I was unconscious during the the warming up phase. The one to to answer your question though, the one memory I do have was so Monday morning. So we had encamped in we had camped in a little bit of a cave, and when we got up in the morning, I remember my feet felt like like blocks of ice, and it just they felt heavier than normal, and I didn't have a good. Um, like proprioception in terms of, you know, when you put your foot down and you can kind of tell. Feel know, the ground. Yeah. What's it like going through life with a prosthetic leg? How hard was that to get used to? And does it work almost as well as your left leg? Somewhere along the way when I was in the hospital, someone gave me a pamphlet. What it said was, amputees have to take a million steps before you get used to it. And the average human takes 250,000 steps a year. And, of course, so I'm doing the math going, oh, oh my God, it's going to take four years to get used to walking with this thing. But I'll tell you what, they were kind of spot on because that's around the time period where I stopped introducing myself as I'm James the amputee and this is what happened. (laughs) Yeah, You know, they're right in that respect. Because what then it started to feel more like a part of you and it wasn't 
identifying you anymore. Is that it? Oh, for sure. Um, I was a teacher for many years, and you know, teacher or kids would say something like, you know, your fake leg or they don't mince words. There's part of me that takes a little bit of an affront to that because it's it's well, it's not a fake leg, you know, and it's an integral part of me. It just took time, and and whenever I've through social media or people that I've met try to do some outreach and help other amputees. What I say is it, it takes time, and it takes probably more time than you're willing to let it take, because that's how it was for me. I mean, I thought I was, you know, four months after getting out of the hospital, I was going to be back full-time at life, and, and it wasn't. It, it takes time, and you've got to figure out how to do things now as an amputee. It's just, it's just part of me. It's who I am. That accident took away your friend and parts of your body. What else did it take away from you? It certainly took away a career. I had, the year prior to the hiking accident, I had accepted a management position with a subsidiary of Concord Coach Lines. And incidentally, and, and I would say, uh, they were an exceptional company in terms of helping me through my hospitalization and recovery. That's wonderful to I hear. I, I like to that, ride them. <laughs> oh, good. I don't know that I've ever shared that publicly. Um that's but, worth saying. Absolutely. When they, a company treats you well. They were wonderful. But I, I'm i sure that um, it became pretty apparent rather quickly that I was not the person I was and was not really capable of continuing in the role that I was in at the time. And, you know, we parted ways. I dearly love working in the bus industry. I loved it at the time. And it, it's funny. I mean, I've got a lot of remorse and regret over you know, that, that element. So, you know, when I when out of something I've lost, that's what it was. What's really weird is I don't sit and say, you know, oh, I lost a pinky and I lost a leg and I lost a half a foot. I, I, did, I just don't have the same feeling about, and it's not to minimize any of that. I just don't have in terms of what I've lost. And the other thing that I do think about a lot is I've lost that moment. And you're a hiker. You know this. You know, there's moments throughout the hike that you're like, man, this is it. This this is, you You cannot get any better than this moment right oh, now. It, it's nirvana, isn't it? It, it can, And I think that's what we look for in the mountains. Peace. And it, it Challenge. Ha- it happens skiing, Beauty. it happens cycling. Right, you can find other sports. Absolutely, but there's also this greater moment where, you know, we went out and we hiked such and such a mountain, and that whole event becomes that moment. And I certainly have lost that, because um, I don't really hike anymore. It's, it's just too challenging to walk that far, and the descending is, is too hard for me. I think the descents are hard for everyone. It is always the hardest part of a hike, I think, for a number of reasons. Certainly. What did the accident teach you in a general sense? How much longer do we have? What did it teach me? Um, I don't know. I have a pretty big (laughs) SD card. (laughs) So funny enough, one of the things it really has taught me is to appreciate the last time that I do something. And it doesn't have to be like... I had I had a dear aunt a few years ago. She's she's passed away a couple years ago, but I had gone and visited her, and she lived in another state. And um, 
we spent the afternoon. We went out to lunch. We spent the afternoon together. She she was maybe ninety two or three years old, and I distinctly remember leaving her apartment. And I said to my and and I I was able to recognize that this is probably the last time I'm going to see her because it's not someone I see frequently. You know, for instance, when I ski, it's it's very important to me to end my day at Mount Sunapee and Ski Ridge from top to bottom. And that is, that's the last time that I ski for the day. It's how I end my ski season. And sometimes I've gone to Sunapee and I've skied with people and, and they don't want to ski that one last time. And I'm like, well, well I have to. It, it's just how I have to end my day. And I think some of that stems from as an amputee and having this near-death experience and thinking about, um, oh, well, okay, the last time I went to a movie, oh, it was with Fred, and, you know, when we saw such and such a movie. And so it really was a focus for me for a long time of this, you know, kind of these lasts in my life. Did you ever feel survivor's guilt? Absolutely. I do remember talking, this was at Dartmouth, talking with, I think it was the hospital chaplain, and I remember asking if uh, Fred's family was mad at me. And we'd, we'd had a conversation about this, and th- what ended up happening was, was Fred's ex-wife and one of the sons, he had these he had twin sons, they came and visited me, and, and I really had to hear from them, from his ex-wife, Bet. They were not mad at me. I might be a little mad at Fred, you know, is basically what she said, but I'm not mad at you. But I definitely had some survivor's guilt. Do you forgive yourself? Absolutely. I think that's I think that's how we move forward as human beings. I, I what you said earlier, we do the best we can with the information we have in a given moment. You've said that you're spiritual when you read that passage from the book. How did coming back from the brink of death change your perspective on life? Are you less fearful, for example? I I think when it comes to life, I think what I have come to appreciate and what I've come to learn is there's things that I'm willing to compromise on life and there's things that I'm not willing to compromise on. And I think that's the answer. In one of my prior podcast episodes, I interviewed Ty Gagne, the man who wrote the book about your mountain rescue. In that interview, we discussed the range of heuristic traps or mental shortcuts that sometimes get people into trouble. We talk about managing all kinds of risks out in the world. And if you're looking to learn about how to be a better hiker or a better decision maker in general, I suggest that my listeners check out that episode. It's called Risky Business. So I won't go into too much of that here, except to ask, what were some of those mental traps that had a negative impact on your hike? I know mainly, I would say, is the expert halo. You know, Fred had more hiking experience than you. He was your informal leader. I would completely agree with that sentiment. Certainly, certainly that expert halo. Prior to the hike, I mean, one of my backgrounds in as as a trainer in the bus industry, and it, I've always kind of wondered, like, there's a tremendous value in training th- for emergencies. And, you know, you, we do that in the bus industry. So if, you know, problem A happens with a passenger, this is what you do. And I was always part of that process. Or when there's an accident, this is what you do. 
And for some reason, and I've never quite figured it out why, I never brought that to uh, to my hiking career with those guys. And they were all much older than me. You know, Fred was 17 years older than me. So, you know, maybe I decided to take a back seat because they're older and wiser, and I'm just going to go along with them. The rescuers inserted themselves into the same life-threatening situation in which you and Fred found yourselves, yet they're quite empathetic with people they rescue because they understand just how easy it is to get into a situation like that. Do you dwell on your mistakes or the fact that those mistakes put a bunch of rescuers at risk? No, I don't I don't think so. I'm incredibly grateful that, that they do the things they do. I think that most of them can share moments when, you know, they had problems of their own. And that may be why they volunteer. And it may be that they, you know, they love the woods and the wilderness and the mountains enough that, you know, they get a certain amount of satisfaction out of being part of that group. What do you say to people who are quick to judge you for even hiking in the mountains with a winter storm approaching? I don't know that I often feel judged like that. I think that I just play it off as it is, it's what we do. It's what people do. When I read about these kinds of accidents, some people argue that you should have to pay a fine for being rescued. What do you think? That's a, that's a tough question. Um, it was one that um, I had a discussion with one of the fish and game officials uh, when I was actually when I was still in the hospital. And um, just out of curiosity, you know, how much does this rescue cost? And, you know, his comment was, you know, let's start at $125,000. And, you know, of course, it's like, oh, my goodness, you know, on top of now I'm in the hospital. I don't know. That's a hard question to answer. There's part of me that says, yes, if someone goes into the woods or into the mountains and they're negligent, absolutely, there should be some recourse for the state of New Hampshire. And then there's part of me that says, no, if you go into the woods and we can rescue you, we'll rescue you. If we can't, we can't. Here in New Hampshire, Fish and Game encourages you to buy that Hike Safe card, and people can get that at hikesafe.com. People who do are generally not liable to repay costs if they need to be rescued, and negligence is not a factor. So that's help offsetting some of their costs when you buy that card. But I think the main focus, they would say, is education. They want you to learn the best practices of whatever sport you're undertaking. And in the case of hiking, you know, know what to pack, know how to use what you've packed, know the weather forecast, research the trails, be in good physical shape. But, you know, we can't get to zero risk. Education is is so incredibly important. You know, just the, the 10 essentials. If you're going out on a hike, these are the 10 things you need in your backpack. And then if you're adding risk, so now we're going to do an overnight, so here's another list. Or we're going to do a winter hike, so here's more things to add to the list. Jim Surrett was the guy who first spotted you on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Have you talked to him since he helped rescue you? I think we've only crossed paths twice. I was I think it's the spring of 2009 I went to the um New Hampshire Fish and Game like rescue training at Cannon Mountain and I showed up there and and just said a few words and it was important to me to give some personal thanks to the people that rescued me. 
he and I briefly talked there, and then he was part of the Law Enforcement Awards, I think it was 2010, for heroism in um, law enforcement. At Mount Sunapee, you're part of the Adaptive Ski Program. What are you doing there? I started skiing again in 2010. My prosthetics guy, the guy who makes my leg, he's actually an above-knee amputee, and he's a world-class skier. He's a two-time Paralympian. So when it came time to start skiing again, he said, you need to call up the New England Healing Sports Association at Mount Sunapee. So that's what I did. And in 2010, I started skiing there. And it took about three or four seasons to kind of get everything locked down and figure out the differences in the skiing. And I mean, today I'm a full mountain skier. I don't ski glades, but, you know, there's not really a terrain I can't ski Maybe four years ago, I decided that I needed to start volunteering there. They're a volunteer organization in terms of the instruction. There's part of me that says, what do I know about skiing in terms of taking someone out and teaching them how to ski? It's also like who you are. and As a person. I, yeah, and I said, I want to learn to ski again. You know, that's got a tremendous value with people within uh, the challenged um, athlete community. I follow you on Strava, and I love road cycling just like you do. What have you been doing? Do you ride all winter? Because you're still riding, I see, and now it's December. So I'm like I, a fair weather cyclist. Yeah. I, I mean, once it's... Do you not feel cold anymore? Yeah, so if it gets much below 40 or 45 degrees, I do not ski outside. Or, or cycle. I do not cycle outside. I have um, in my house a... Um, Oh, God. A trainer. A trainer. I have a trainer that that's like connects with an app and, and so forth. The big thing for me on, in cycling within the last year was I decided to become a um, classified paracyclist. Uh, there's a whole classification system within the paracycling community so that people with similar um, challenges are grouped together from a competitive standpoint. So I am not competing against a cyclist that is missing both legs, or I'm not competing against a cyclist that is maybe only using one leg, um, or I'm not in the same group of cyclists as someone that's a paraplegic. So there's all these classifications. Well, there's this whole classification process, um, and I decided to do that because I decided I wanted to start doing competitive cycling. Is challenging yourself in sports about finding the edge, you know, finding that point where you can grow as a person, but also knowing when to back off? Absolutely. Um, And Ty certainly talks about this, um, you know, finding the edge in terms of, you know, the fastest I can go and then, you know, step over the edge a little bit and come back. But what I have discovered and what I've appreciated as a challenge athlete and then the people that I've met within the challenge athlete community is that recreational exercise is, is the key to recovery. And it, and it's whatever, whatever form of recreational exercise it is that you want to do. It, it could be swimming. It could be just getting in the swimming pool and moving around. It could be the goal is to walk the dog around the block. For me, the goal was to become a skier again. And that is the absolute most important thing 
you know, there was surviving the hike, there was standing up and walking again, and then the next step was learning to ski again. And that is the absolute most important thing for my physical recovery. I imagine part of your emotional growth was aided when you met your nurse, Susan, (laughs) who's sitting with us today, your partner. She's a hospice nurse. Certainly she wasn't in a hospice setting with you, but tell me about that story. Uh, so the backstory prior to the hike, I had I had I'd gotten divorced a couple years before, and I decided you know it, it's time to start, you know it, it's time to have a you know a, a partner in my life. And I remember like I was like doing this daily affirmation of like you know I'm ready to have someone in my life. And so then the hike happens. Well, of course, all that stuff gets derailed for three and a half months. And I got out of the hospital on a Saturday morning. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, had this moment Saturday night that was incredibly lonely. I had a, a co-worker Sunday. She took me to the grocery store and then jumped forward to Monday morning. So here I was and I needed um, home care because I still had some active wounds that needed some attention. I needed a lot of physical therapy and I needed occupational therapy to get my hands healthy again. And so lo and behold, Susan walks in the door um, and she's going to be my admitting nurse. You know, off we go. And uh, she liked you before you knew it. But (laughs) when did you know that you liked her? You know, she did the professional thing and she went back to the office and, and she said, you know, I really like this guy. I can't be his nurse you know, you need to assign him to someone else. And and then that was kind of it. And uh, about six weeks went on, and I had another um, nurse. It, she was getting ready to discharge me from the service, and uh, she says, do you remember the uh, su- nurse Susan? And I said, yeah, was she, was she came to my house the first day. Gina was this other nurse's name, and, and Gina said, yeah. She'd be interested, you know, in, in going out sometime with you. And, of course, I'm thinking, you know, here I'm like this broken down new amputee. Like, what the heck does anyone want to do with this person? And um, so she gave me her number. And I think I sat on the number for about a week. I didn't do much. And then I called Susan and, and we I think we chatted a couple times on the phone. And we went out to Panera for lunch. And I can remember walking in with crutches and a surgical boot on my foot. And so anyway, I mean, here we are 13 and a half years later. And, you know, it's been wonderful. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. I'm really glad you're here today. And I'm glad you found a partner, too. Thank you. And that you love cycling and skiing as much as I do. Diary of a Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review my work at Apple Podcasts.